Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to New Books in Psychology and New Books in Neuroscience. This is a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Dr. John Griffiths from the University of Toronto and Toronto's Centre for Addiction and Mental Health. And I'm co-host of this channel with Chris Harris and Joseph Friedman. So today I'm speaking with Nick Chater. Dr. Chater is a professor of behavioral science at the University of Warwick Business School in the UK. He's a highly distinguished within the field of psychology with over 200 publications, multiple national awards, and is an elected fellow of the British Academy and the Cognitive Science Society. Nick's work covers a wide range of subjects in the areas of reasoning, decision-making, and language, and he employs experimental, computational, and mathematical techniques to study these areas. And he also works on applications of this research in public policy and in the private sector. So today we're going to be discussing Dr. Chater's recent book, The Mind is Flat, The Remarkable Shallowness of the Improvising Brain. Um, In this book, he launches a pretty comprehensive attack on ideas like unconscious thought, deep motivations, and folk psychological beliefs and desires. And he argues for a picture of human cognition as rather a constant stream of in-the-moment interpretation, reinterpretation, confabulation, and personal narrative generation. So there's a lot of interesting ideas and scientific findings to talk about here. Um, So let's jump in. Nick, hello. Hello. So I hope you've been faring okay during the COVID apocalypse, mandatory question. So far, so good. Absolutely, yes. But it is, uh, yeah, it is rather overwhelming, everything else. So very nice to have a chance to talk about some science. Excellent. Well, glad to be providing that. Um, So before we actually get into the book, I, I have First up, say cards on the table and, and a little anecdote. I'm actually in a in a very minimal way. I'm a former student of Nick's. So Nick, I took a course that you taught at the University of Warwick Psychology Department as an undergraduate in around about 2004. It was a uh, language and thought. Ah, good old language and thought. Yes, I remember it well. Right, you remember it well. Very good. <laughs> Um, and I was curious, actually, to go over to just take a look at some of the materials, um, some of my notes from the course. And unfortunately, the physical notes, if they do still exist, are on a different continent, probably in my parents' attic in the UK, um, collecting dust. But I, I did do some rummaging around in, in my old emails, and I was trying to see if there's any kind of digital trace of this. And, and what I concluded from that little... Um, that little experience was that my my digital record starts around 2006. Uh, <laughs> there's no trace of anything um, uh, as far back as 2004. Um, so that was an interesting little um, educational experience for me. And like uh, everything before that seems to have, you know, for all intents and purposes, disintegrated into the sands of time. Uh, so, but yeah, enough about me. That was a little anecdote. So, so Nick, before we get down to business, um, in terms of talking about the book, I've, I've wanted you first to tell us a little bit about yourself. So if you could give us both a personal and a professional biography, bringing you up to this point, and also um, how the, particularly in the, in the kind of research line, the, the things you've been thinking about over, over your career research-wise have led you to 
um, the thesis and the ideas that you're presenting in The Mind is Flat? Yes, well, thanks very much, John. So um, so I suppose to start at the beginning, I started, um, I grew up in, in the south of England in a variety of places, but most, but latterly Sussex. And at school, I was very interested in um, maths and also philosophy. So in fact, one of my uncles gave me Bertrand Russell's History of Western Philosophy, which I thought was amazing and is, in fact, an amazing book. Um, so as a 14-year-old, I was thinking, oh, philosophy is fantastic. Uh, but of course, if you're reading it through Bertrand Russell's eyes, you also think that philosophy has to be done via the root of mathematical logic. Um, so, so I was very interested in mathematics and philosophy, so I mixed it physics. Um, I was a, an undergraduate for a little while at Cambridge in mathematics um, and then switched to philosophy. Um, Realize, after realizing that the amount of logic, which I thought was terribly important in those days, uh, the amount of logic in the Cambridge Maths course wasn't sufficient. Um, and then through philosophy, uh, I actually became interested in um, psychology because we had an optional course in the second year, which I took. Um, but having said that, um, I was interested in psychology really in a different way from earlier than that because I, but I, I even took um, some psychology A-level night classes with, bizarrely enough, my RE teacher, my religious education teacher, um, who had a sideline in psychology and ran a, uh, A-levels for adults. So I went along. And it was, in fact, totally mystifying. I mean, it was a very, very strange course indeed. And uh, I'm not sure if he understood any psychology, or certainly I didn't afterwards. Um, but, uh, but at least I was in, in enthusiastic. Uh, and I also um, uh, read, I think, an amazing book by Doug Hofstadter, Gerd Lescher-Bach, which I think was published in about 1977 or 1979, um, which actually influenced me a great deal because this was a book talking about um, patterns in the world of all different kinds, especially interested in self-referring patterns, things like computer programs that talk about themselves and uh, the connections with Gödel's theorem and all kinds of exciting things. Um, But the thing that was really interesting to me was the idea that you could take a mathematical or computational perspective on the brain. So to try to understand the brain as doing computational information processing work so that struck me as a really exciting thing to do and it introduced me to the idea of cognitive science which is essentially the project of trying to understand the brain as a computational system so that was a lurking in the back of my mind of something i would really be interested to do Uh, and one really inspiring experience for me was to in my second year as an undergraduate um, i went to see a lecture by jeff hinton um, Jeff Hinton is one of the pioneers of neural networks, in fact, based in Toronto. Um, and he's a British, uh, British scientist, in fact, was uh, an undergraduate also at Cambridge um, many years before me. Uh, I'm doing the same course, funnily enough, because I've ended up doing natural sciences with psychology as my ma- major, as you call it in North American terms. Um, and Jeff is now very well known. He's very well known then, but he's very well known now as one of the main inventors of um, deep learning. Uh, so that's the, the, the sort of computer, the machine learning technique that underpins um, most of the big breakthroughs that have occurred in machine learning in the last decade or so. And it's obviously, it's not just a theoretically cool thing, it's a very widely widely used uh, technique across all the big, uh, big, big platforms, uh, Google and, and such like. Now, so Jeff was talking about how you can think of the brain as a, um, a neuro, as, a, as a computational machine in a very direct way. So rather than thinking, well, we understand com- computers such as our laptops, well, not very well, we understand them a bit. Um, obviously, the people who build them understand them very well. Um, 
And so in some abstract sense, this is processing information, and so my mind must be processing information too, and there, there must be a useful analogy there. Instead of saying that, he was saying, well, actually, um, the brain is this network of uh, nerve cells that fire pulses at each other. And we can, in a very clever way, start to understand how you can do calculations a lot with this machinery, how you can think of a network of interconnected nerve cells that basically push um, push numbers at each other, how you can get that network to actually do calculations and indeed to also learn. So that was a really exciting thing. Uh, it can not just do calculations, but it can learn to do calculations. So that really starts to look like you have a, a kind of clear pathway to understanding how the brain itself could be um, could be computing. Now, that was a very inspirational experience for me and um, made me think that what I wanted to do was think about this problem, um, the problem of how a brain could do uh, computation directly. What is the actual, you know, what's the mapping between the activity of the, the nervous system and, and calculation? So calculations here, of course, are not sums. Uh, they're much harder calculations. They're calculations like, given the pile of uh, light, uh, the jumble of light going into my eye, what on earth is out there? That's a really hard calculation. That's the kind of thing that takes enormous amounts of computing power um, to do for, for conventional computers. Uh, and indeed, they don't do it very well, even despite all these clever breakthroughs. And uh, the human brain is fantastically good at it. So we open our eyes and within a couple of hundred milliseconds, we've, we've got a lot, uh, a, lot of, a lot of understanding of what we're looking at. Um, not quite as much as we might imagine. We might come back to that later. But um, we have a sense that the whole world is there before us. That's a bit of an illusion. But nonetheless, we're fantastically good um, visual computing machines. So thinking with that, with that perspective in mind, I, I wanted to do cognitive science, this computational approach to the mind. I was intrigued by the idea that we might want to understand um, that really quite directly in terms of how the brain operates. And I, that's something I've always had in the back of my mind, but it's never come very far towards the front although it does actually impact my thinking in the book quite a lot. Um, so I went, then went to uni the University of Edinburgh uh, to a, a, a centre for cognitive science, which has now no longer exists. It was a great place, um, wonderful place to be a PhD student and had lots of other terrific people there, um, many of whom have gone on to become quite well-known people in psychology and cognitive science. And um, the, that's now folded into the School of Informatics at the University of Edinburgh rather than being its own independent thing. But when I was there, it was teeny. It had 12 graduate students a year. It had um, about five faculty. And it was just a really amazing opportunity for, for people who were interested in the mind with all kinds of different backgrounds from psychology or logic or mathematics or um, uh, linguistics uh, and others um, to, to think about how they could um, put their ideas together to try to understand the, the brain from a computational point of view. Now, beyond that, I've been, in terms of departmental affiliation, I've been a psychologist, and I guess I am a psychologist, that's, that's, that's my natural identity, um, but I've always been someone who's never quite sure what discipline I'm in at any given moment, so I'm somebody who just wanders about um, finding interesting things to think about and trying to think about them in a constructive way. So I, I've not, I'm not somebody who's particularly narrow uh, in my um, interested approach. So I've done experimental psychology uh, where you try to learn things by doing experiments. I've done some computational modeling, done some mathematical modeling, and just lots of general thinking about how the mind works. And I've, as you mentioned at the outset, I've been interested in quite a lot of different questions. So how, how reasoning works, how decision-making works, 
uh, how we learn language, how language processing itself works. It's a very complicated problem. Um, and I've, I've also been interested a lot, but not worked that much on perception. So I mentioned vision earlier. I'm very, very influenced by vision, and I'm very influenced by, influenced by what we know about how the brain does vision. Um, because that's the thing we understand well. That's one thing. So it's always good to start where you have um, some sort of firm base. So we, we know quite a lot about um, the, the, how the brain does vision. I mean, it's still largely mysterious, but we understand it a lot better than we understand you know, more complicated things like how we do you know, how we write symphonies or come up with scientific theories or or even just reason about the common sense world around us. So we understand vision much better. Um, but also. Um, I think the thing is that, that vision and uh, perception in general and the ability to use vision and perception to control the body. So perceptual and motor things are kind of very much one, really, because the main purpose of, um, uh, of, of, of perception is to, to, to act. And so that's sort of um, the, the machinery in your brain that does perception and action. I think that's really the, that's, that's the, the basic machinery that uh, we start with. And indeed, we share to some degree with with other animals, and other things are built on top of that. At least that's my starting point. So my assumption would be, if we know how vision works, we know how other aspects of perception work, then that's going to be a clue how we do more complicated things, because we've only been, been able to evolve those more complicated things very recently. I mean, we've only had you know, language. I mean, who knows? But maybe a, maybe a million years. That's a very long estimate. Some people might say it's hundred thousand years or fifty. But we've been seeing and hearing the world uh, through our sort of long ancestral lineage back for tens, uh, tens, in fact, hundreds of millions of years. So we're really going to be good at, 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 uh, at perception. We're not going to be very good at uh, these late, late, jolly-come-lately activities like language and complicated reasoning and science and so on. So I would like to try to understand how you can build um, a brain that's able to do all those complicated things out of the machinery that it's likely to have evolved with. And those, a lot of that machinery is going to be, it's going to be stuff that's evolved to do perception. So, so actually one of the things that is a theme implicitly in the mind is flat is let's look at, let's look at what we know about how perception works and see if that gives us clues about how more complicated or supposedly more complicated aspects of uh, human thought work. Because I think we're just borrowing a lot of the perceptual machinery and reusing it to do other more complicated things. Yeah, I, I can see it's interesting that you you kind of laid it out as explicitly as that because it's definitely um, quite clear from from the book and from like both the the how it's laid out, but also where the biggest kind of force of argument comes from. The the um, the thesis kind of hangs quite strongly on them on a lot of the the um, most robust and most um, kind of striking effects in in visual perception um maybe maybe that's a kind of a didactic strategy as much as anything else on your part but um the the influence of vision on the on the general idea is is pretty clear yeah um, it isn't just didactic really i mean i think that's the way i see things so i mean I, yeah i another thing in terms of background is i um my second year psychology course uh, as an undergraduate the thing that flipped me into doing third year psychology switching back to natural sciences um was uh, a, a general introduction to the whole of psychology um, in um, three-hour sessions once a week. Um, so it's pretty pretty broad brush. Um, but it was taken by a psychologist called John Mollen, who worked on color vision. And he was just great because he just spent so much time telling us amazing things about perception. 
and, and giving us lots of amazing perceptual demonstrations. And I think the thing about perception is it is just obviously astounding. Um, you really have a, an intuition for how it works, and it really doesn't work like that. So when you, when you encounter this, I think, at least for me, it really, really changes your sense of uh, whether you should trust your intuitions about how your mind works at all. Um, and it, it's so clear. In, the case of, in cases like perception, and we'll talk about some of them later, I'm sure, um, it's just obvious that the way you think your mind works is, works is completely wrong. Um, and so I suppose that is a kind of an eye-opener. Because one of the problems we have in psychology, both for psychologists and people outside psychology, is that it's easy to think, well, I, mean, I know pretty much how my mind works. I mean, it's my mind, after all. I mean, there I am observing it day in, day out. I'm, it must have a pretty good sense of what's going on. Um, you might be able to give me a, you know, a few tips about how to learn things more quickly or how to remember things, or I don't know. Um, you might be able to give me a few clues about uh, sort of foolish errors I might make or how to nudge myself to be a bit more sensible and not make such, um, not, not be so uh, liable to procrastinate, whatever, this, whatever it might be. But one says the kind of re- requests that you get at, at, at dinner parties and uh, in bars when you tell people, when you use the P word. Yeah, yeah, I, well, exactly. And of course, say, I, uh, I'm a psychologist. Yes, and it triggers all sorts of things. And so then none, none of them. Uh, yeah, none of them. None of them. You can actually respond to very helpfully. And because another area, which I, again it does come up a little bit in, in in the book, is is dreams. So it's another thing. One thinks, well, you know, dreams are a bit of a mystery. I mean, daily life. No, I, I, that's perfectly understandable. I, I, my mind is just uh, completely transparent. I I understand myself in the day, but at night, well, strange dreams come up from nowhere. Uh, that day, you need a psychologist. And actually, I think that whole perception is completely wrong. And my my feeling is that. Instead of psychology being broadly commonsensical, I think almost everything we think we understand about our minds is completely wrong. Um, and, the, and the mind is just far, far weirder than we imagine. That's, that's a very motivating perspective, it seems to me. I, I, or, I, I like areas of psychology and areas of science where you, know, you, you put the time in to learn new things and, and the new things you learn aren't something that was somewhat commonsensical before you started and you could have guessed with a bit of introspection. Um, so that's, that's the kind of thing that I like to hear. So, okay, let's, let's jump in. Um, now before, so the, the book is divided into two parts. So the part one is, is called the, the illusion of mental depth. And then the second part is, is on the improvised mind. Now, what I'd like to go through, I'd like to go through each of these in some detail and kind of pick out not every single um, point, but some of the key um, argumentative lines and some of the key pieces of evidence um, that you're bringing to bear in those sections. Before before we jump in in depth on part one and part two, could you give us an overview of what you're aiming to do, what the big picture, what the thesis of the book is, maybe a little bit of the, the key pieces of detail, and then we'll jump in on part one in a little bit more detail. Yes. Yeah, so I suppose the, the, the title, The Mind is Flat, is trying to counter an intuition that we have that our minds are full of all kinds of mysterious depths. And these depths, are, they're churning away. There's all kinds of interesting things in them. And occasionally, um, something pops up from a mental depth. So I thought, a thought occurs to me, and you think, ah, well, that thought was in my mental depths a moment ago. It was tucked away in the back of my mind. It's now jumped to the front of my mind, and it's now explicit. And look, I'm saying it. But it was in the back before. 
Um, and it's gone back again now. Um, so the idea that there's this sort of seething mass of thoughts, occasionally which pop out, pop out into the, um, uh, it's it, it actually m- m- become vivid in consciousness or be spoken of. I think that's one illusion we have. Um, and I think alongside that, there's the thought that one's mind is doing all kinds of is all kinds of complicated background thinking. Um, so we have the sense that, of course, I'm here. I am chatting to you, but of course, I mean, who knows what other thoughts my mind is having? It might be, um, it might be you know, trying to remember something I tr- couldn't remember earlier, and then that's that. It might solve that problem. It might suddenly remember it, and then pop out and say. Yeah, I don't know whatever it is. Um, you know, give a give a name of a film star or something that I was struggling with earlier, or it might be working on some tricky problem I was stuck with. So when I go back to the problem, I'll look at that and I'll think, oh, I've got it now. And maybe it's because of that thinking I was doing when I was when I was chatting to you. And I think the thought that there's all there's a whole world of mysterious um, uh, mental activity um, which is hidden from us. But it's actually is quite a counterintuitive idea, and rather going against my previous point that to some extent we think. The mind is transparent. Since Freud, I think we've also had the sense that, oh, hang on, no, no, it isn't, is it? Because there's all this unconscious stuff, um, and that's uh, that, that that's uh, that's going on in the background. And I think that's all. Yeah, you know, it's all an illusion, complete, a complete, uh, complete fraud. So just to, to amplify that a bit, if you if you do something um, and you wonder why you did it, you can say, so you, know, you think to yourself, why, why did I take that route to the shop? Why? And think well, of course, it's the it's the most attractive route, or possibly the shortest route, or it's the route I normally take, or whatever. Um, and the it's so easy to slip from that to, into thinking, well, of course, um, my brain must have figured that out. I mean, that's the I'm just looking up what my brain thought um, when when deciding what to do, and I, and, it, and indeed the thing it decided to do is to take the shortest route, and I'm just reporting. And if you say, but why the shortest route? Say, oh, well, of course, I was in a hurry, and so my brain was thinking about that too. And you say, well, why are we in a hurry? And I can give you a story about why I was in a hurry. And so it goes on forever. And it might just not be inconsequential stuff either. It might be a question of um, you know, why did you take a particular job or why did you marry a particular person? Or it could be um, you know, why did you make some sort of hugely important moral decision? And whatever the, whatever the, the case, we can give explanations. And if you probe the explanation, we can explain the explanation as long as you like. Any part of it, give me a query, yep, another explanation comes to mind. So it's easy to have the feeling that um, that, that I've just got this incredible treasure trove of stuff inside me. It's just amazing what's in there. And the more you probe it, the more there appears to be. It's like, it's literally endless. Um, and in the early artificial intelligence, um, people uh, st- started with the assumption that this was a good way to try and get at human knowledge. So if you want to understand how a chess player chess plays chess, you say, well, here's a few chess positions. Now, what are you going to do and why are you going to do it? And, and why does that make sense? Why does that make sense? You get this story out of people and you get the get the, the principles of chess and then you code them up in your computer and it should be able to play chess too. Or maybe it's um, how people play uh, poker or how they play the stock market or whatever it is. Or, or you take doctors who are doing diagnoses. You just ask them to explain what they're doing, take all that information, and pop it in your computer, and then that 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 should encapsulate that information. And that's a very appealing story, but it, it's completely it turns out to be completely wrong. Um, so in practice, what we're doing, and this is the point about the improvisation, is it's not that we've got this great store of pre um, preconstructed explanations with all my beliefs and plans and desires all clearly and sort of carefully worked out, and I just look them up. Instead, I rather than looking them up, I'm cooking them up. 
I create something. Uh, I, I invent a, a plausible sounding story um, in the moment. And the reason we know that, though there's lots of examples and we'll perhaps talk about some of them, but the reason in general terms we know that is that you can get people to give you explanations which are clearly and patently wrong. So what, just to give you one example of this, if you uh, ask people which of two faces they prefer, this is an experiment done by Petter Johansson and Lars Hall at the University of uh, Lund University in Sweden, and Petter was a postdoc of mine um, after doing this work. So I wish I wish I was responsible for it, but I'm not. Um, so in Petter and Lars's experiment, they asked people to, to choose uh, which face they prefer. They then uh, say, "Well, explain why." But in fact, they've done a card trick on people. So this this experiment is done on cards with the photographs on faces on the cards. Uh, and they actually hand you, using close-up magic, they hand you what you think is the card you preferred. But in fact, they've swapped it with the other one. So you're now looking at the wrong face, the one you said no to. And you're asked, well, why? Know, what was it that made you think that was the, your favorite? And some rarely, but it's not, it's not absolutely never the case that people say, hang on, hang on, I must have made a mistake. That's the wrong face. Um, but sometimes they do. And in fact, at the end of the experiment, they say to people, oh, we played a trick on some people and they explain the trick. And about 20% of people will say, oh, yeah, I guess I was in the trick condition, wasn't I? You must have played the trick on me. Um, but 80% of people say, yeah, no, you didn't play a trick on me. Anyway, so you do the trick with people. And so they're looking at the wrong face, the one they didn't choose, and you ask them, why did you choose it? Now, if they were able to look up in their mind um, the sort of history of past thoughts and quickly refer to what, what their reasons were, they would say, well, you know, it's very odd, but um, the reasons don't seem to fit the true face I chose. The reasons seem to be kind of the opposite ones, but not a bit of it. You ask them why they chose the wrong face, and they give you an explanation. And the explanation obviously is wrong because it's the wrong face. And in fact, it's, not, it's also wrong in detail. So it'll be things like, oh, I really like curly hair. But in fact, you chose the person with the less curly hair. Oh, well. Um, so what that's telling you, well, this is what Petra and Lars would, would, would argue, and I think I, I, I agree. What I was telling you is this is confabulation. Right? You, you ask me why I prefer something, I'll cook up a story. If you ask me to prefer the, why I prefer the opposite thing, I'll cook up a story for that one too. And I'm so quick at it and so good that I don't realize I'm t- cooking up a story. I think I'm explaining the history behind my decision, but I'm not. I'm just making it up. So I suppose the general point really is that we're incredible improvisers and explainers of our own behavior. And the illusion we have when we think we understand our minds is that when you ask me to explain my behavior, I'll give you a story. And I say, well, there you are. That's, uh, that's problem solved. I've explained why I went to the shop or why I chose this particular meal or why, why, I, uh, why I go to this restaurant in the first place. I understand myself. But in fact, what I am, what I am instead is I'm a sort of master explainer. I'm a master fantasist who can put, create a very sensible-sounding story out of nothing. But that story is just confabulation, not to be treated at all seriously. So I guess that's... Excellent. Uh, yeah, so and just to wrap up then, I mean, the the point, I suppose, the, re- the reason I was driven to write this book, this is perhaps worth saying before we go dive into the details, was that a lot of, um, a lot of areas of... Um, science and social science which try to explain the mind um, are very wedded without really noticing it to the idea that our minds are quite transparent um, and and coherent too so if you're um, for example um, thinking about 
artificial intelligence, as I was mentioning before, then one approach is to think, well, we have some fully coherent and transparent model of the world, um, and you just need to work out what it is. Maybe we, maybe it's not so transparent, maybe it's hard for me to explain what it is, but there is one. There's a model in there of how the world works, and, and that's what I'm using to guide my thinking. But it, and it's coherent, it makes sense. Um, and similarly, in economics, people model uh, a human behavior as generated by fully coherent um, uh, set of beings with set coherent beliefs and coherent preferences, and they make decisions to, to maximize their uh, fulfillment of their preferences given the way they given what their beliefs are. And this all seems very sensible. Um, but in fact, um, and the puzzle of both uh, artificial intelligence and economics is that people seem to be remarkably um, incoherent in their actions. They do just do funny things that don't seem to make sense. Uh, don't seem to be consistent and don't seem to be consistent with what they're supposed to be believing or what they're supposed to like. So there's this sort of general puzzlement. And I think the reason that that, that puzzlement, I think, is, 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 a, is a clue. And a clue is that the idea that actually inside me there is this coherent vision of reality um, or this vast and this vast sort of sea of, of knowledge and, and, and belief and um, preferences and so on is, is itself completely wrong. Um, it's more like I'm telling a story. And if I tell a story and you, I tell a lot, especially I'm, trying, I'm, I'm telling a, a bedtime story to a child, and I, 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 I keep telling the story and it goes on and on and on. And then it starts to get inconsistent. I start to forget the names of the characters and one minute they're over here and some, another minute they're supposed to be over there. And so the, then queries can, can come in from the child saying, well, hang on, but, you know, how does that fit together with that? And the answer is, oh, well, you've got me there because it's a story. And if I'm making up a story, I will make inconsistencies everywhere. Um, now if, it, if I was reporting reality, then, of course, I was looking at, 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 a, at a kind of a narrative, which was sort of written, sort of journalistic narrative written down, that, which was reporting the truth. And, of course, it would be consistent. But it's a story. And then stories are always inconsistent. So I suppose the, the whole sort of idea that there's this kind of um, coherent, consistent model of reality within us it's so basic, not just to our intuitions, but it's so basic to, to so many theoretical perspectives on the mind. And I think it's, it, I mean, I, had it, I, I assumed that was the case for a long, long time. And it's a great relief for me to think, no, that's just completely wrong. Um, it's, just a, it's just a mistake. Um, and in fact, I'm, a, I'm an improviser. Um, I'm trying to be coherent. I'm not very coherent. Uh, when I think, I don't know what I think about something. I really don't know. And I'm, when I come up with an answer, it's not that I think, oh, I did know, and I've just now told you. It's that I really, really didn't know, and um, you know, I made it up. Thanks. That's a, that's a really great overview. And the, the 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 two things, I guess, in in my kind of response to the overview, or that the 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 the, first, the general impressions I get from what I think of the my response to what I'm seeing is that. The, there's two things kind of going on with the the book and with the thesis. One of them is on is is somewhat kind of modest in a way in that it's um, it's following some very prominent and and like robust strands of of psychological research, which which maybe we'll go into in a second on you know the the, the grand illusion and and perceptual components, and then and then the second half is or the second part is is rather more um, <laughs> risque or rather rather stronger in in its implications where 
where in one version, one kind of extreme version as well, substantial amount of, um, you know, behavioral, uh, psychological, uh, economic, and other areas of, let's say, science, knowledge, thought, and understanding that you're kind of trying to take a hammer to, or at least a strong interpretation of some of the um, the arguments would lead one to think that they should take a hammer to um, certain kind of edifices of of knowledge about that have come from, say, experimental methods that involve survey responses and introspective um, answers um, given by subjects on what the reasons for their action responses are. So there's a, there's there's an interesting combination of um, you know straight up like good solid cog visual psych and some really kind of profoundly kind of almost scarily risky uh, implications but maybe we'll get to the maybe we'll 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 look to the the big picture and the implications um in the latter half of the discussion and 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 go now into some of the the um perceptual aspects that are in the first part of the book so what you're doing um in in part 1 is is um using to some extent, kind of cataloging, pulling together and cataloging a number of examples in a number of different psychological domains, um, where the what what the um, what one might believe, kind of introspectively or otherwise, about what one is uh, perceiving or seeing is just wrong. Right. Um, yeah. So, what what would you say are some of the most striking and, and demonstrative um, visual or other perceptual illusions that you would highlight here? To make these points, yeah, well, there are there are there are lots, and um, but I think one or two are particularly clear. So one that is amazingly uh, unavoidable is the fact that we think we see color everywhere. So the first thing you learn in sort of biology at, at school when you look at the eye is you learn that there are two kinds of um, light detecting cells, rods and cones, and cones detect. Uh, of which there are three types, uh, detect color. In fact, they detect color because they look at the differential um, activity of the three types. And then rods are just black, essentially just giving you a black and white rate readout. And another thing you learn is that most of the cones, a really vast majority of the cones, are in a tiny area called the fovea at the center of the eye. And that subtends an angle of about one degree. But that's, it's, it's a... It's a it's not, it's not a precise definition. And as you go out from one degree of angle, so that's about your thumb uh, when you put your arm, arm fully away from your uh, body. It's about the size of your thumb, uh, so the tip of your thumb. That's one degree of visual angle. Um, and as you go, say, five degrees out, uh, then you have some more cone cells. And there are a tiny number of cone cells beyond that, but almost none really. So that means that your color vision is only really good um, at about at, at this sort of thumb at arm's length, th- the thumbnail at arm's length um, uh, aperture, it gets pretty poor outside that. Um, and then when you go to the periphery of vision, uh, you, you have no color vision at all. And the weird thing is, as I look around the room now, I think, yeah, but that's not right, is it? I see everything in color. I'm looking at my bookshelves, and there I see a whole range of books of all different colors. I mean, that's very odd. How can it be that um, when I know that my, my, there's no color detecting cells that are actually active, uh, but I still feel that I see all these colors everywhere. Now, the, there's a trick going on there, and this trick is, is going on everywhere, I think. This is going back to the point about confabulation. Um, we're, we're thinking 
that we're simultaneously loading up the colors of the whole visual world. I'm thinking, and I see these bookshelves, I see all those colors, I see the reds and the greens and the yellows all together. Um, but of course, if you ask me to report a particular book, um, how do I actually answer you? So you say, what about that book over there? You point to it, perhaps you're standing by the bookshelf. And I look over and I say, oh yes, well that's, that's orange. And then you, you ask me another one, I say, oh, the blue. Um, now, I, I can do this all day, right? You can ask me a question, I give you an answer. Is, I'm, I'm great. Um, but what am I doing? How am I giving you that answer? And it turns out the answer is I'm doing it by eye movements, of course. Um, so I've only got this little one degree of really accurate color vision, uh, but I keep moving it around. So as soon as you ask me a question, I pop over my eyes to, uh, to answer the question, and I give you the answer. But I'm so quick that I think I always knew it. So this is a bit like the, the, the uh, explanations we were talking about a moment ago. So if you ask me why I do, did something, I say, oh, well, the reason for that was I wanted to be as quick as possible. And I was in a hurry. Um, and, it, and I say it so fast that I have the illusion that I, it was all in my head already. That I, that I wasn't just making that up. It was just sort of um, already prepotently lurking within me. And, and this is only the same with, with colour. So, in fact, um, you can't detect colour outside this tiny window. And there are lots of experiments where you can show that. For example, um, you, can, uh, you, you, you can give someone an image where there's only colour in the, um, the, the part of the image they're looking at right now. And as they move their eye around, and you're following their eye with a, what's called a gaze contingent eye tracker, so um, a, uh, an eye tracker that watches the eye and moves what's on the screen, changes what's on the screen, depending on how the eye moves. You can change what's on the screen so that the, there's only colour pretty much where you're looking. Um, and you see full colour just as normal. You think everything's colourful? Now, someone looking over your shoulder would say, no, they're not. There's just a little um, a little blob of colour, and everything else is black and white. Yeah, but I don't think that, because everywhere I look, I see colour. If I look here, I look there, I look to the next place, colour, colour, colour. Um, now, in fact, I'm kidding myself, because, um, in fact, of course, every time I wonder what the colour of something is, I can give a true answer. But I only knew at the point I asked that very question. So a good analogy here is the the famous um, uh, thought that fridges fridges always seem to have their lights on, and of course they don't. They only have the lights on when you when you open them. But if you open a fridge, the light is on, and there it is, a lit as normal. So it's rather like the visual system is rather like a a, 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 a giant array of fridges. And you imagine all these fridges before you, got a huge bank of fridges um, uh, going in two dimensions. And if you open this the, is fridge, the new one. Ah, that's, that's on that fridge, and then you close it and you open another one, you think, oh, that's on as well. And, and have a quickly you open and close them. Every time you open one, it seems to be on. So you have the feeling that all these fridges are on all, all the time. Similarly, anyway, in terms of color, they, the, 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 the closed fridge is like something with no color. But as soon as you check it, it's got color. And you check another one, it's got color too. Um, and I think this is just an amazing thing. And this is something that you know, we, know, we know is right, because you know, apart from the experiments, we just see, know the physiology tells us we can't possibly be seeing color. And yet we think we do. So it's just an incredible, incredible surprise. And even as I look around the room now, I just can't really believe it. I mean, it just seems absolutely astounding that um, what seems like a fully colorful world simply isn't. And, and one can say the same um, for detail too. So another amazing experiment, and this is done by Keith Rayner um, and his colleagues at uh, then at MIT and, and for many years after in the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. Uh, they did lots of experiments on gaze contingent eye tracking and reading. And uh, 
the the wonderful wonderful type of experiment that they pioneered was one in which I look at a, I read a, a line of text on the computer screen, and as I read it, the eye tracker is monitoring my eyes and deviously just creating letters where I'm looking, and everywhere else, the whole rest of the sentence is just X's or or Latin or anything. I mean, it has to be vaguely word-like. Um, so I I read this sentence um, where every time I move my eye, sensible letters appear, and everywhere else is X's. So if you were looking over my shoulder, as I read the the, the um, sentence, you'd see coherent letters, a little bob, um, blobs of them popping up and disappearing, hop 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 across the screen, and most and against the background of X's. But for me, it's just normal reading. I mean, I'm just reading fine. I don't think there's anything wrong. I see where I, wherever I look, letters appear. So I think I see all those letters simultaneously. Um, so, so that's the same trick as with colour, but now with detail, or indeed in this case, letter identity or word identity. Um, so if I look at a, a whole book of text, um, if I have a book in front of me, I think, I see words everywhere. There must be you know, must be 100 words on that page, and maybe there are more, maybe there's 400 or whatever it is, and I'm, I'm seeing a good bulk of them. Um, but in fact, I'm not. In fact, I'm basically only able to recognize about 15 characters, 15 letters. And roughly speaking, only actually read one word at a time. So the best models we have, computational models of reading, um, the best, the, the, probably the most standard one is a thing called Easy Reader, EZ Reader. Um, that does a very good job of predicting human reading performance with a model in which, roughly speaking, you just read word by word. Um, now, if it's a long word, you need to, uh, you need to look at it twice. If it's a very short word, you may be able to hop over it because you can guess what it must be. But roughly speaking, you're reading one word at a time. And yet, when you look at a page of text, you have that sense of all this, all of these words being simultaneously present for you. It's just extraordinary. So I think you're know, there. You're sort of seeing this astounding power of confabulation. This is, this is the, the idea that um, philosophers have called the grand illusion. That you have this illusion of the, an amazingly rich visual world but in fact, we know you're seeing it through an incredibly narrow window. You're seeing it, as it were, one word at a time, roughly one coloured patch at a time, one face at a time. Um, you can only analyse the world in a very narrow, you have a very sort of narrow, thin connection with reality. But because you can move it around so fluently, you can ask yourself a question, who's that, what's that word, what's that colour, and you can get an answer in a flash you have the sense that it's all at your fingertips. And in fact, it is. It is all at your fingertips. All of this stuff, all of this information is available whenever you need it, but it's not actually loaded up in your brain. So, so that, that's good. So the, the, because one of the, the, um, the implications, it seems, of the, the general ideas, these ideas that you just described and that you can sketch out more fully in the, in the other chapters is the really intrinsic need or kind of coupling of action to the um the the illusion of you know detail in the sense that part of the illusion is the assumption or the knowledge uh, the tacit knowledge or, or whatever of of the ability to um obtain the information that is uh, illusory right to so your um yeah, your, your example with them with saccades is is an excellent one of that, but I think this applies to probably ninety percent, if if not more, of the examples you're talking about. So, it, it do you and and this connects to some other 
pretty prominent threads in in psychology and also pretty wide in neuroscience about predictive coding and predictive processing. Uh, Andy Clark's book um, from a few years back is a is a great um, tour de force on on some of the threads in there. So do you do you see this as um, you know part of that picture, or or do you have any like reservations with uh, tying the the kind of mind is flat um, put the perceptual part of the flat mind idea to uh, uh, kind of perception ap- action cycles and predictive coding frameworks. Yeah, it's a it's a very good question. I don't think I have a fully worked out answer to it, and I have thought about it quite a lot. And I think they're not incompatible ideas at all. Um, and I think one of the things that's very interesting about the predictive approach is that the idea is that, or at least one way of viewing it, is that the things that you're conscious of are, are cases where your predictions go wrong. Um, so, uh, so for example, if I re- reach over towards a cup. Um, I might pick it up, maybe not have any real awareness of what I'm doing. But if it turns out to be stuck to the table, then I think, what? This is weird. Um, I didn't expect that. So I, in some sense, I'm, you know, I'm making predictions about um, what's going to happen, and it, and it doesn't happen. Uh, so now, now it jumps into consciousness. Now, I think the perspective I'd have is that we are actually doing very narrow. We're not, we're not able to do um, an enormously rich degree of perceptual motor uh, interaction at once we're, we're really at very very constrained so if i'm picking up a cup and i'm making predictions about what the cup's going to do not not, not explicit ones not conscious ones uh, and I'm, I'm disturbed when they don't do what i expect them to do but actually but if i'm focusing on a cup all the rest of the visual environment is sort of lost um, and the thing is i'm engaging in a perceptual action with that cup and the other parts of the world uh, I, i'm just engaging with them so um, if they do something strange, I won't really notice. Uh, so, the, so, the, so in a way, the, the reason you can get away with a very sort of serial brain that cares about one thing, then thinks about another one, cares about one color, then another color, then a, reads a word, then reads another word, is because we're acting in a fairly serial way. I mean, of course, we've got you know, we've got two hands and so on, but roughly speaking, we do one action at a time. So we're basically engaging with um, it, with, with with the world, allowing us to uh, perform one action at a time uh, and that that's you know that, that, that all the all the rest of the perceptual machinery uh, sort of perceptual machinery um, is is either engaged on that task or it's just doing nothing useful um, so yeah as I, as I pick up a cup and I might, I might look over at it to make sure I, I, I pick it up correctly um, in some theoretical sense you might say well lots of information about the rest of the room is still flowing into your eye I mean of course it's rather, rather blurry because I'm looking at the cup I'm not looking at that uh, rest of the, the world but you're not using that for any action so the fact that you can't really make, make anything of it is fine it's absolutely fine um you, you you're focusing only on the things you're, you're you're actually acting on so i do think there's probably quite a deep connect deep connection which i don't think i have fully worked out um but between the serial nature of the brain and the, the serial nature of action i mean having said that i don't think if, if we wanted to do lots of things in parallel if we wanted to you know uh, do lots of uh, activities with our different hands doing totally separate things. It's not that that would be easy for us. We just, you know, it's just not something we're very interested in. I think that would be super, super, super hard. And trying to disconnect the activity of one part of the body and another one is very, very difficult indeed. Because um, the brain is indeed naturally operates as a sort of single system. So, so then the 
this idea of serial um, action and this kind of serial flow, this is this is actually one of the 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 key, um, uh, let's say, strong statements, uh, or at least one of one of the stronger claims you're making in, and this comes in. This is kind of fully argued in the second part of the book, and you call it the the cycle of thought. Yeah. Um. So, and and before we get to that, I just wanted before I forget to um, note that I, I, I I'm going to be confident in attributing to to you the statement that um, that the mind is like a fridge. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes, the, the fridge theory is mad. It's, it's time is yeah, that, <laughs> that might be that might be all yours. That one. <laughs> Um, but yeah, cycle of thought. So, um, so this is this is something that you actually uh, you articulate in a fair bit of detail, and you 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 really try and make the case for. So, so could you kind of jump in on that and yeah. and, and kind of cash out that idea and what what the what the more compelling pieces of empirical evidence that you think you know serve to to make the case for this idea. Yeah. So, so the rough, so the, the core idea is that you're only able to take in um, and solve one challenging problem at a time. Indeed, one problem at a time. So it might be I hereby pick up this cup. Uh, it might be I'm reading a word. It might be I'm, re- I'm uh, recognizing a face. Um, it might be anything. Uh, it might also involve more than one uh, modality. So it might be that a task, as, as so often, which involves integrating um, visual and um, auditory information, for example. So if I'm uh, trying to understand what someone's saying, I'm often looking at their lips. Um, so that's, it's not that you're able to do, that, 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 that doing one thing means just using one sense. And very typically that's not the case. Again, picking up a cup, I might be uh, feeling around, um, trying to find it. If it's a little, if it's a slightly dark, so now I'm using tactile information and I'm using a bit of um, rather poor visual information um, or whatever it may be. So um, yeah, but basically you're, you're a one. You're, you're 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 able to do one point of task at once, um, and I think the the, the sort of intuition I want us to well, I think one can, let me start by saying one reason you might believe that that's roughly true um, that we're serial creatures goes back to the point about thinking of the brain as a computer computational system which is working on the um, sort of this network of neurons because the thing is that when you try to understand how networks of neurons calculate things, including how um, artificial neural networks, the kind of thing that is used nowadays in in machine learning, as I mentioned before, um, how they work, they are basically only able to do one thing at a time because they distribute distribute the computation across the entire network. So it's not that they say, you you brain cells over here or you artificial cells over here in our computer simulation, you go off and solve this problem and then these other cells can do something else. Now that's not the, not the way it works. Um, they're basically, there's one um, there's one problem and the, problem, the, the network is trying to solve a single problem and it spreads the problem across the entire network. So if you're trying to um, use a neural, a neural network, an artificial one, to, to learn to recognize faces from images, then the, the entire network will um, be active when, you're sh- when you show it a, a face. If you then try and train, train the same network to do some other task, then, or um, indeed for that matter, to try and recognize two phases at once, it'll just get a problem, terrible problem of interference. Um, the, the two, the, 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 um, the spreading out of the, of the computational work is now jumbled up between one problem and the other problem. So you just can't do that really. Um, it's basically a system which is just inherently able to do one thing at a time. Now, 
the key point though, there is a slight wrinkle to that, which is that if you can do two tasks without using the same bits of brain, you're laughing. That's fine. Um, so if it's the case that you can separate one task from another because one bit of brain's doing one task and one bit of brain's doing the other task, then that's fine. They're not going to interfere. But as soon as you have any overlap, you're in trouble. And, if, and since the, the brain is a very profligate kind of thing, so it, it tends to use very large amounts of, um, uh, of brain to solve almost any problem. Look at the uh, neural activity doing almost anything. There's lots and lots of overlap with everything else it does. You tend to get lots of interference. So you don't, it's not easy to exploit this ability to do multiple things at once. And generally, we're very, this is another point about why, from a the point of view of neuroscience, we really have to be very, very serial, serial creatures. Now, so you would say maybe that, say, multi-sensory integration phenomena, the McGurk effect springs to mind, would be a case of the brain struggling to do more than one thing at once. Yes, I mean, the McGurk effect is actually a very interesting case where you're uh, integrating um, integrating information which looks like it is connected but isn't. Um, so in the McGurk effect, you're, you're looking at a, uh, a person speaking and you're hearing what they're saying. But in fact, it isn't really what they're saying. You're actually hearing something slightly different. Um, and in fact, in particular with the McGurk effect, the, the, the simplest version is you you give a you, you you hear someone saying something like g g, which is some sort of b uh, b versus g kind of analog. I can't quite fuse those together, but something in between a b and a, a b sound and a g sound. And you see a person um, saying b b b, a nice clear b, or g g g, nice clear g, and you hear uh, you actually hear the the, the b or the g. Depending on what depending on what you're actually looking at, even though if you shut your eyes, you suddenly think, "Oh, right, nothing's changing." But as soon as you open your eyes, they go "burger, burger, burger." You're jumping from the "bur" to the the "ger" from one time to another, based on your visual uh, visual input. So there, um, your your brain is because it's only able to do one thing at a time. It can't think. I'll listen to those sounds and work out what they're all about, and I'll look at that that, that person speaking, and I'll think, "Hmm, they seem to be saying." But because I'm looking at their lips, but the, the, all I'm hearing is this sound, which is consistent. You can't do that. You just have to solve one problem, and in this case, you solve it by by fusing the two together. So yeah, I think the McGurk effect, and indeed lots of similar effects, they do seem to imply that we're only able to really um, uh, you know, do solve one perceptual problem at a time. Good. So I. I wanted to. I think maybe I want to come back to the the cycle of thought and the and the seriality um, kind of claim because it it, it does un- yes. under undergird a, a few of the I can, kind of I, subsequent points. Yes, and I should give um, other examples too. So yes, indeed. So very yeah. Okay. Well, okay. Well, maybe go ahead of that, and then what I wanted to touch on next because this is this is one of the I think another of the this kind of stronger claims, but also it's something that maybe you could cash out for us is. Is, is memory right and is there, yes. there's a difference between let's say memory and the types of things that you're arguing against yes. that are kind of yes. deep, deep okay. so one, one more example of why we can't um, why we're serial creatures why we can't really multitask so this is uh, an experiment done by um hal pashler uh, who's a remarkable um sort of attention and performance psychologist at the university of california san diego uh, who's done many, many very remarkable experiments on on the limited limitations of attention. I just want, just want to pick up on one, which is particularly so striking. Um, so the task is that you're in a 
you're you're doing a, a driving task. In fact, you're just on a PC with a foot pedal or whatever, and just just driving along in this kind of um, game like environment. There's a car in front of you in the road, and you just have to follow the car with a little toy steering wheel. And obviously, if it stops, you've got to stop quickly so you don't hit it. That's uh, one thing you've got to do. And there's also a little task where you have to look at the uh, back of the car, and if some lights come on, you have to uh, report the lights coming on. And um, so the question is, is there any interference between these two tasks? Um, so you might think, well, not really. I mean, you know, braking is something that is, you know, it's all about, it's all about the foot, isn't it? I mean, you see, you see the, the brake lights come on, and you you you, you engage the foot, and uh, and 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 you, you know, they, or, or indeed the car also slows in front of you. So you just have that automatic reflex, you might think. And then there's this question of um, responding to the to the, um, uh, the, the, the the light the lights in the car that you have been told about specific lights. Or I think actually there's also a version where you you have to respond to a sound as well. As well. Um, and it doesn't matter how you respond, whether you respond. Um, uh, verbally, or whether you respond in some physical, some manual way, um, it turns out that whatever whatever you're trying to respond to, and whatever the response me- mode is, you're you're foiled in your braking. So if you're told if you if you have to do something else and brake, you basically just cue them. So you do one of them, and, you, and, and in fact, often you do the task you're told to do, and then you think, well, I've got that out of the way. Now I'm going to brake, um, and of course that's really bad. Uh, what you want to do is you you like to believe you just have a, a, a sort of a, a wired in braking mechanism after all those years of driving, and you can do other things. You can chatter. You can um, think about this and that. You can uh, sort of idly look around and and uh, see if you recognise somebody you're passing in the street, and you can do all of this uh, completely independent of that braking sort of uh, feedback loop, which you like to believe is just wired into you. As soon as the lights go on in, the car in front of you and it starts to stop, you brake. But it's completely wrong. Um, it turns out that there's no task you seem to be able to give people, which is so easy that it doesn't interfere with braking in a fairly fundamental way. Basically, that they do you, you have to complete the task you're um, you're told to do before thinking, oh God, I've got to break that. So that's um, I think that's really very very remarkable. And there's a whole sort of area that Pashler really largely set up which is on this idea of the psychological refractory period but it's basically this idea of queuing if you have to do more, more than one task you you basically have to queue them and you have to discharge one task before starting the next one um and that's something that is is implying that there's this really very deep bottleneck for many tasks now i don't think it's absolutely universal there are going to be things you can do which don't involve overlapping bits of brain so that, that, there will be some of those so People can say things like, yeah, but I, I can walk and chew gum at the same time. I mean, look at me do it. Um, or I can talk and walk. Um, and these are, you know, something like um, balance is something where if nothing unusual is happening and you're just walking on a, a, a flat bit of pavement, then it's something you can, your brain circuits involved in that are pretty distinct from the ones that are involved in uh, sort of high-level uh, chit-chat. Um, but of course, not, head, even, even that's not true if, you, if, if you're walking on difficult terrain or you stumble, or you stumble you'll soon shut up then <laughs> because suddenly uh, other other brain mechanisms are required to uh, to solve a more tricky problem yes yes good um so so memory and and memory and i want i want to kind of go there via um a a reflection that um, well, it helps with the memory point, but it is also one that I wanted to wanted to bring in, which is um, 
you you mentioned this as well in your in your opening remarks actually on your kind of bio was that you, you you're coming in some sense intellectually perhaps from a very early point um to some of these these uh, research questions in psychology via some some interesting questions in philosophy of mind and one of the you know key currents in philosophy of mind in and one of the kind of critical uh, dimensions of um, thinking in philosophy of mind over the last hundred years or, or more has been various iterations of um, kind of dis, um, uh, taking apart the idea of folk psychological beliefs and desires in general, and also their their ontological status as real things in the mind, in the world, and their role in you know actually having say causal influence in governing um behavior or or just um causal influence and any kind of real real uh substantial kind of component in the mind or the brain so the in in a way like the the way part of your thesis in the book seems to be picking up this trajectory from Ryle and from from the Churchlands and from Dennett onwards and, and having another stab at folk psychological beliefs and desires as things that exist in the world. So, but that, that I think, so, you know, maybe you can comment on that, but it, that also does do the job of taking me into the, the questions that I wanted to ask about memory in the sense of the, 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 the critique that you, you're making, let's say on, beliefs and desires is that this is some enduring sense of self, some enduring um, uh, kind of un- undercurrent of personal identity and um, the um, kind of beneath the, beneath the, the sea level part of the iceberg of the human mind, right? You, you, re- you really want to um, want to take out that perspective in a big way, but the, the, what you want to replace it with is something that's more along the lines of um, in the moment kind of improvised interpretation of information which is still there, right? So there's still some kind of enduring knowledge, some enduring information representation that is going to be, you know, on various timescales on the level of minutes, days, hours, years, right? That's there. You don't want to be arguing against that presumably but you want to you do want to say something substantial something substantially different from i have beliefs and desires or kind of enduring psychological um attributes that um lead me to uh make decisions or or or, you know yeah let's just stick with decisions perceptual inferences you want to say something different to that now what i'm not super clear on is um, what the, the the clearest way of articulating the difference between what the 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 memories on which the 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 in the moment improvisation are based and the thing that you're arguing against in terms of enduring beliefs and desires. So could you have a stab at that? Yes. So I think the key distinction is between um, beliefs and desires, which are aiming to express general things. So things like you know, I, I have a, a, a general belief that, you know, um, I don't know, um, that Paris is the capital of France, or I have a general belief that um, pro- protons have a positive charge. Um, and, and the idea that the mind is just full of these, these general beliefs. And, and similarly, for, 
for desire. So I might think I prefer one one type of cake to another. I prefer cake to lettuce, or or the opposite. Um, and these are these are, these 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 general things are sort of stable aspects of my world. Versus the idea that um, what I have in my mind, what I'm using to make my new next decision, is the um, the traces of all the past decisions I've made. So what I've actually done is I've I've acted and tried to explain my actions to myself, and that leaves a trace. Um, and there's just a litter of these traces. Um, and when I try and do something something new, um, I'm going to be using I'm going to be referring back to those those past traces. Now the thing is that these past things I've done will not necessarily be consistent. So um, so for example, if I give you a, a, a gamble and you, you, I say, well, you can have um, $50 or you can have a 50-50 chance of $100, you might think, ah, well, I happen to be someone who doesn't like risk, so I'll have the $50. And if you were a stable risk, not, not somebody who didn't like risk, then you'd always do that. Um, but as it happens, we know when when people give do experiments with um, these, these kinds of uh, gambles of all, all different shapes and sizes, that people are unbelievably... Uh, capricious. Um, so you give them the same problem um, ten minutes later. They'll with the probability of something like a third. Given the, the typical kinds of gambles people get asked about, it's obviously you could have crazy extreme cases where people would be very stable. If I say, "Would you like a million dollars versus no dollars?" Well, that's easy. Um, but with reasonable, you know, sort of plausible uh, choice, cho- cho- sort of dilemmas like the one I just gave you, um, people will you know, about a third of the time just change. Um, and so you give them the same gamble twice, and then a, f- a few minutes later they're given a different answer. And this is true just across the board. They're just incredibly stochastic. They're just amazingly unpredictable. Now, if this doesn't, doesn't really make sense from the point of view of a um, uh, having a stable st- stable preference, but it does make sense if you think what you're doing when you're making a decision is thinking, well, where have I seen a decision like this? Ah, this reminds me of this decision I made before. Well, I'll, I'll do that. That's 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 what I do. I, I, I have those preferences because I did it before. But of course, this will not necessarily be stable at all. So if I if, if I start to make different, um, make, make a different decision in one situation versus another, then when, when I'm in a third situation, I might think about the first one or I might think about the second one. And then, so I'll, I'll say I choose the first one. But then again, I think I come across some similar situation, and I might refer to, I might go back to the one, the, the cases where I took a risk, or maybe the cases where I didn't take a risk. So I'm just going to be stochastic all the way through because I'm always just referring to things I did before and trying to trying to make sense of what what my preferences are based on what I've done. Now, another way to look at that is to think about how you understand other people. So you might think to yourself, yes, but surely I just know what I'm like. I know what kind of things I want. I know what kind of things I believe. But my counter to that would be that you also know that about other people, suspiciously well. So I, I start the book by talking about Anna Karenina, the um, great Russian novel, and, and uh, Anna herself is someone who, you as the reader, you have a feeling you know a lot about her. Um, in fact, you know, she's a bit of a mysterious character, and she's not completely predictable and unclear in her behavior, but you have a sense of a full, rich person. Um, and you feel that you run, you, know, you you know a lot about what she's going to do, and sometimes she surprises you, sometimes she doesn't. Um, but my sort of perspective there would be to say the sense that you have that there's a real person being written about, which is obviously an illusion because it's a it's a, it's a novel, um, is because you're able to confabulate answers to questions like, well, what would you know, what would Anna do in this situation or that situation or 
And why did she think this? And why did she do that? And if you are, you know, if you say, you know, why did she snub Vonsky in one particular her lover in one particular situation? You can say, oh, well, I think it was because of this. You can tell this story. You can tell it very fluidly. Um, but actually, all you've got are incidents. You've got specific incidents that happened to this person. And when you think about your own life, it's just the same. You've just got stuff that happened to you, things you did. So when you think, what sort of person am I? What do I like? What do I believe? You have to figure it out in just the same way, I think, as you do for a, for a character on TV or a character in a book. But luckily, we're really good at it. Um, so we're so fast, so fluid, that I can tell those stories about myself quite convincingly. Now, occasionally, I think we all have a sense of, yeah, I'm a, I'm a total mystery. I don't know why I'm doing half the things I'm doing. We have occasionally have the veil is lifted slightly and one has a sense of bafflement. But most of the time, you know, the storyteller just marches on. This is this is really fascinating. This is actually one of the uh, I, th- I think the the most interesting parts of the of the uh, of the the thesis is is this. Um, you know, it, can, it, it would imply um, that, um, let's say, strategies for um, attempting to have a more fluid um, personality, for the sake of a better. Um, you know, choice of words there. You know, the the the, the process of um, observing my past behaviors and um, uh, taking that as a guide to future behaviors, just just by virtue of their familiarity to me as answers to that question or as choices made along those lines. Um, that that sounds like it's an interesting thought experiment to say. Well, can is that something that can be manipulated? Uh, and even even kind of brought into a let's say a, a, I don't know a, a therapeutic strategy um, or a, a mindfulness based you know um, intervention and, and that's actually something that I thought um, maybe we could close on some some broad picture broad kind of implications on on where what what kind of directions that some of these ideas go I want to go for one more. Um, a detailed point on on some of the some of the core ideas before we expand out and maybe close up the conversation because we've just gone past the hour mark so we can start winding down and the next one I want to go into is um uh unconscious insight which is something that you have some quite strong views on as well you cite some experimental literature and you're going you have a, a little anecdote about Henri Poincaré um, that you you don't take too uh, kindly to his uh, ideas about um, how he's he's uh, he thinks that mathematical insight is coming in an unconscious way. Um, so yeah, could you take up that? Yeah, yeah. Now I should say uh, disagreeing with Poincaré is never a, 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 a something you should take up lightly because Poincaré is undoubtedly one of the great geniuses of the last hundred years or so, uh, obviously he created all kinds of phenomenal mathematics and physics and is just a spectacularly remarkable person. Um, but I think none of us, including Poincaré, actually know how our own minds work. And so my defence is that Poincaré is infinitely cleverer than I am, but uh, but we're both fooled by our own minds. And it's only if you look at um, the sort of experimental literature in psychology that you realise what's going on. So, so Poincaré's um, idea was that his deep mathematical insights were sort of occurring while he was sort of staring out the window on a bus or just engaging in daily life. And he'd then return to a tricky problem, having done something completely different, and he'd think, ah, I see it. I see it all now. It's all completely clear to me, and just write out the solution. 
Um, so, so going from unclarity to clarity was certainly occurring after a period of doing something different. And his interpretation of that was that my brain's been pondering the problem in the background. So I want to give a, I mean, there are, there's lots of very boring experimental evidence, which makes that not less, look less plausible. Um, I mean, it's not boring. The experiments aren't boring, but it's kind of boring to tell. But the, the, the rough nature of these experiments is you give people some problem that requires insight, or possibly a several problems that require insight. You, they get a bit stuck, can't solve it. Um, so it might just be giving them lots of anagrams or so, um, little problem-solving tasks. And then you give them a break, and then they, they start up again. And the question is, have they solved any of the problems during the break and when they're doing something else? And the answer is, well, not really. What it seems that, that there's a slight advantage of having a break, um, but it seems to be entirely explicable, or at least this is my story and, and many people in literature, and it's not actually universally believed, um, but it seems you can explain pretty much all of that by the assumption that what they're doing is being jumped out of the sort of um, the, the cul-de-sacs they've got themselves into. So if you ask me um, who was, if you, who, who was, what was the name of the Hunchback of Notre Dame, uh, if I don't get it straight away, I might find myself thinking, well, Notre Dame, now that reminds me of uh, of Nostromo, and then that reminds me of um, uh, the Spanish word Nuestra. I'm going down the wrong track here because it's Quasimodo. Don't go, you know, get away from those N-words. Nothing to do with Notre. Um, but if I... So, so once, I'm, once I've got down the wrong path, I'm stuck. Um, so doing something else will unstick me. So I look at the problem fresh and I think, oh, yeah, Quasimodo, bang. Now, the thing is that I think that's happening all the time to us. So, so when we have the um, the intuition you know, that um, you know, some, somebody somebody I, I'm wondering about the name of a film star, I can't think think for the life of me what it is. And then suddenly, while doing something else, in 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 the in pops the name to my mind, supposedly. And I think what's actually happening there is something rather different. What's happening there is you're it's a crossing your mind to wonder about the name of that person again, and in, instantly the answer comes to mind because you've not you've not got. Um, uh, you've got out of your cul-de-sac, but of course, then you just all you have is the sense of my goodness, that just came from nowhere. It didn't come from nowhere. What came? From, what came from your mind wandering, coming back to the problem, re-readdressing it, and now it was easy. But it was so quick that the, it sort of seems like it just popped up, popped up from nowhere. Now, the reason I'm very unconvinced by the idea that the brain can be doing this kind of background thinking. It's kind of slow pondering in the background is that if you give people tasks where they have to do really, really elementary um, background thinking, they can't do it. So this is an experiment I did with Greg Jones and Elizabeth Mailer at Warwick. Um, around the time, actually, you were probably having the language and thought lectures. This was in uh, early 2000s, I guess, something like that. Um, oh, excellent. And um, this... I was working with Derek then and not, not so much with Liz. Right, right. Okay. Um, so this was a... Um, this was a, an experiment where we simply got people to name as many colors as they could or as many animals or cities or whatever it was. Um, and so one version of the task is you just say, well, okay, off you go. Just name lots of British cities or colors or anything you like. And so people would do this and they'd write them on a piece of paper. And after 30 seconds, it's very low tech, after 30 seconds, they had to turn over the page. We were watching them. And then you'd write some more down. Then you'd turn the page again and write some more down. And in fact, you get pretty slow, even if it's something like um, towns, where there's loads of them and you know loads and loads of towns. You start off really quickly and pretty quick, pretty rapidly you slow down. It gets harder and harder. One reason is you keep thinking of the old ones. You think, oh, London, no, I've done that one. Oh, Manchester, yeah, I've done that one too. So you kind of, you slow, you slow down. Now, the, 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 what we were comparing is what happens if you give people 
the task independently. So let's do t- let's say it's towns and um, colors. Say, so I give people towns and give them colors independently. Or we say, you know, if you get stuck with towns, just give us a few colors. If you get stuck with colors, give us a few towns. Now, if you were able to probe your memory separately for colors and towns, then this would be a great advantage. Because you think of some towns and you think, oh, I really can't think of any more. But thank God my, my color, um, uh, color memory has been uh, probed because I've been, think, been checking out the colors. And so now I've got a whole stack of them ready and now I'll just you know, reel those off. And then when I've been reeling those off, they, the town memories will start to come back. So if you could search separately for these two sets of things, then you'd have a huge advantage uh, if you could do one, if you could do either, over what you would have if you just do one at a time. But actually you don't at all. You don't get any advantage from that process. It's exactly as if you think, all right, time for some towns. I'm now stuck. Now, time for some colours. Um, and you do some colours and you just go back to towns and you go back to colours. Every time you switch over, there's no advantage at all. It's not like you've stored up a few that you've been secretly searching. So it seems that searching for memory in memory is a serial process in the sense you can only search for one kind of thing at a time. So my suspicion is if you can only think about, if you even only search for color words, and if that blocks you searching for um, town words, I can't believe that if you're actually holding a conversation on the bus with somebody, you're secretly thinking about deep mathematics. That just seems really implausible. And of course, I, I also believe this because I think that the brain is, um, it's, it's fundamental wiring of the brain is that it's working using this um, distributed neural, these distributed neural networks, which interfere, where, where, where if you're trying to do two tasks using the same circuits, you just get interference. And for almost any, um, high-level high thinking, anything verbal or conceptual, you're using fast tracks of your brain to do that. So the idea that you're actually secretly doing some deep mathematical reasoning or problem-solving on the side seems very unlikely to me. It's not, you know, we, we can't prove it for sure, but um, if there's any unconscious processing going on, I suspect it plays a very small role. Interesting, interesting. So that that is, I mean, tell, tell me if I'm wrong about this, but that that's, that sounds like something that, is slightly divergent from what you might um, at least read in, say, a textbook about what happens. I mean, also, I wanted to bring in what happens after after sleep. You know, so there's there's only memory consolidation. There's imp- performance improvement, and the the type of textbook, and also at the at the neurobiological level, there's um, um, you know synaptic renormalization, and there's um, a lot of really fascinating. Um, structural at the level of at the level of cellular processes um, changes that are happening that the the kind of textbook description of um, uh, connecting that to things like memory improvements in psychological tasks is that you you've got a, a kind of unconscious um, processing and and kind of working out of some of the information that you've acquired and that you've or the tasks that you've been undertaking in the previous 24 hours 12 hours or so and um and the the process of slow wave sleep and maybe some of the kind of replay aspects of REM sleep are um are doing that you know, maybe in REM sleep it's not unconscious maybe it is maybe it's not REM sleep is complicated but that something be- between you know when you go to bed and when you wake up is like I said that the kind of one of the textbook lines would be that that's um, a kind of unconscious sorting out of um, some of the perceptual, sorry, the, the, some of the reasoning or the cognitive tasks that have been kind of implicitly set in motion 
during during the previous few hours of cognitive action. So you want to take some issue with with some of that, maybe at the level of high level abstract conceptual reasoning. But I guess you probably uh, you probably can't take issue with that kind of all the way down because that's certainly right of performance improvement with memory and and so on. So do you do you have like a a threshold where you say okay I I want to I want to go with the the kind of standard line about about memory consolidation type phenomena up to this point but not past that um in this psychological domain yes yes so that's a good question so um i think my sort of i've got sort of two points really so the first one is i think that you should we should think about the process of consolidation as not anything to do with thinking so i'm imagining that it's a little bit like memories writing in a book but the the book the ink takes a while to dry and um, and so and if you if you sort of jiggle it about too much, your book gets too much of a it isn't, has, hasn't got some nice quiet time to settle. Um, then you know it all just gets smeared and horrible. Um, or maybe it's trying to, trying to write in, uh, in in something gluey, but the glue takes time to set. Um, but if you, you know, if you have too much sort of swooshing around going on, then uh, the setting doesn't work properly. But it's not that the but but the, the, but that can still be consistent with the fact that the, you're only writing one thing at a time. So the, the, the process of consolidating for me is not, an, not a deep information processing thing. It's just laying down the traces. It's not that you're going over and then sort of reconceptualizing and thinking, yeah, hang on, I don't need this information. I need that information. It's just a, a very basic neurobiological process. Now, that's, you know, that may not, may not be the whole story, but that's, that's my take on it. Now, the REM sleep replay kind of thought is different, I think. So there, I think that's that's the I thought that's playing into the hands of my story because the very fact that we dream at all and the fact that also... You have this very, very strange phenomena of replay um, in, in, in in humans and animals. Certainly, looks like uh, best understood with, with animals, where it looks like they're um, replaying in their minds um, things that have happened during the day. So things like going through a, a maze or whatever. It is um, it's as if they're, they're, they're re, re, replaying that apparently during sleep. And that seems that that seems to be something that is actually. You know, it, it, the reason that's you, know, the, the, you can, I think, learn from that. I think you can re, re, reprocess and change information through replaying, but that is another conscious flow of experience, and that's you know, it's a bit like mental imagery or something. It's like I imagine something and I can learn from that. And it, indeed, if I if I need to to get at the information and and model, modify it in some way, that's a, a, a information I've acquired during the day. I've actually got to replay it. I can't just fiddle about with the, the neurons. I've got to. To actually reprocess it, and that itself will be more more conscious experience. So I think this idea that there's a single channel of conscious experience, but we might need to overhaul some of it. Is it sort of true? But that's what's happening when perhaps that's what's happening during REM sleep. Perhaps what's happening in in in, in um, these kind of replay phenomena. But I think that's rare and completely different from the process of just, as it were. Um, drying out the writing or uh, drying out the glue so that the that the information's sticking there's no information processing going on there at all but yes these are these are sort of open questions very very interesting questions but they're not they're not uh, they're not yeah. clear cut for sure fascinating questions i mean with replay it's a different domain but you you get replay phenomena in um in uh, you know play cell firing responses in 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 uh, in rats from who've gone in mazes right so it's that's not um, high-level conscious reasoning. That's that's you know remembering um, spatial sequences 
but you can see kind of traces of okay the spatial sequence of the maze during during slow wave sleep um but yeah the, yes that, the relationship that, that, between that, sleep that and memory is, i think the the fact that you can see that outside of rem sleep is 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 intriguing and and presumably and not corresponding to any kind of conscious conscious thought so you know again i mean maybe maybe there's there's something um I mean, it's something. It's still compatible with a serial story in that, um, as far as anyone knows, at least as far as I know, uh, people like that, that you, we haven't found rats which are replaying a whole lot of different run-through mazes simultaneously. They have to do one at a time. Um, and I generally would be very keen if it were to, for, for sort of Occam's razor type reasons, if it turned out that the ability to process information and the flow of conscious experience were pretty tightly coupled. But these are cases where you you do wonder whether that's not entirely true there may be some uh, interesting process reprocessing of information which actually isn't consciously accessible i mean one thing one thing that could be consistent in in part maybe not completely with with your perspective is is the uh, kind of sequence replay in general and um there's you know in in theoretical neuroscience there's these idea of things like things called sinfire chains um which are kind of cascades of of um, you know, maybe like network-wide cascades of neural activity that um, they they follow certain traces through the network, let's say, and in a sense that's a serial phenomenon. Um, it's not in in the sense of it's a it's a flow. It's not kind of one channel cognitive processing in 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 kind of your framing, but it's it, it's a certain type of seriality, um, which you know maybe maybe there's something. Something you can take from that. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I do want to. I do want to close up and uh, maybe turn our attention to one general kind of conclusion and 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 broader vision, if you like. Now, this is something that you do uh, in in the final part, the final chapter, and the and the epilogue of the book, which is to um, to kind of package up the quite. You know, it's a lot of depth, and there's a lot of. Uh, you know, high, high-minded, high science here um, in these ideas, but you also want to uh, you want to um, take stock and say where does this where does this go for the kind of modern conception of the human condition? So I, I, I do want to kind of give you the chance to um, to air those views because there's some interesting and kind of positive parts. But I also there was another component of that that I wanted to just squeeze in and ask you about if it fits if it doesn't fit then then don't worry about it but as you're a um a professor in a business school and i know that you're doing work in policy and um in uh, i guess kind of applications of psychology outside of the lab then um then maybe there's some some of those parts of your portfolio where the the ideas you're working in also kind of connect. So, um, if you had any reflections on those things as well, that would be great. Yeah, yeah. Well, let me start with the the, 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 the uh, second one, and we'll talk about the sort of large, the, the broader section, sort of session. So, it's a broader section on um, how we should see ourselves. So, so in terms of applications, I think there are quite a lot of interesting implications. And you mentioned earlier that sort of conventional market research and and survey work in general. Uh, and actually, qualitative research in the social sciences, which I have a, a very high opinion of. I mean, it's very important stuff. I don't, I wouldn't um, bin all of this, but you, it's easy to interpret it as as, um, as 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 people telling you just what they what they how their minds work. You know, you say, um, 
you know, what, 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 you know, what, um, you know, what uh, I don't know, what browser do you use and why do you use it? And then you got to get a story about that or, you know, which, which is your bank and why, why is it, why, why haven't you changed bank? And a little, you have a little story about that. Um, or um, why, why have you, or haven't you um, had your children vaccinated? And, uh, and, it, and it, what people tell you is not useless information, but they, uh, from my point of view, they are confabulating at the time. So they're, they're, they're thinking, oh, yeah, you've got me there. Why, have, why do I do this? Well, um, I said these other things. And I did these other things. I guess you know, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you this story. Um, so one shouldn't be taking those things at, at face value. Um, and I think that's, you know, that's perhaps you know, not staggering. I mean, you know, we, we all have a sense when we're filling in surveys or being asked questions that we don't really know quite what we why we did things. We feel slightly foolish, but we come up with an answer anyway. But I think what is interesting is if you think, if you realize that people are actually very flexible and not particularly uh, wedded to a particular view of the world or a particular set of preferences, it changes one's perspective of how we're going to adapt, how we can adapt to change. So, for example, if you think um, before the recent past, you think how are people are going to get along with electric vehicles um, in a pre-Tesla world, you might think, well, they're going to hate them because, I mean, it's just like driving around in a milk floater. We just know no model of what an electric vehicle would be, but it's just got to be, you know, it's just, you know, loses all the excitement of driving. Um, it'll be, we'll hate it. Um, and, and people, I suspect, would have given you good explanations of why that they, they wouldn't like it. And, and one reason they'd be doing that is they'd be thinking, well, I'm, I seem to be driving around in a, in a, in, a, in a petrol vehicle or a gas, gasoline vehicle at the moment. So I guess that must be the best kind of vehicle. Um, so there must be reasons why other vehicles are really bad. I, I will tell you some of them. But in fact, people can switch amazingly easily. And once there's some other option, we can all start to think, oh, yeah, actually, uh, all that noise, is, which we thought was exciting, we now think that's just really annoying and pointless. And now we suddenly start to value um, the, the, the fact that the technology is clean and that seems very important to us. And then the other kind of, the, the, the type of things we thought were very modish and um, modern start to seem terribly old-fashioned and old hat. So we completely change. Or taking or similarly with this diet, um, you know, one thing we, we, we clearly, apart from the fact we clearly have to move, move towards electric vehicles, from a, from a carbon point of view, I'm very interested in carbon reduction. Uh, clearly, as a, as, a, as a planet, we have to eat a lot less meat and eat a lot more vegetables, just as a matter of balance. Not zero meat, but we have to eat a lot less. Um, and with a kind of very rigid perspective on uh, human preferences, you might think, well, this is going to cause misery. I mean, maybe, maybe it's necessary, but people are really going to hate this um, because they have these preferences, and their preferences are for the things they're eating at the moment. But in fact, the reason our preferences are for the things we're eating at the moment is, is to a great degree that that's what we eat. So if you ask me what I like, I think, well, what do I eat? I mean, these are the things I'm eating all the time. But if I eat different things and get used to different things, then, then I like those instead. And there are, there's some, uh, I can't remember who did the study, it was quite a well-known um, study, a classic one, where you ask people whether they prefer ice cream or yogurt, and the ice cream uh, fans will say, oh, no, I wouldn't want to eat yogurt, that's you know, very dull. Um, but if you force them to eat yogurt for a few days, they start to like yogurt, and you know, then then yogurt is actually just as nice as ice cream. So you know, a healthier option is 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 now now embedded. And I think just in general, we're just much more flexible than we think, both as a society and, and as individuals. So I, so I think that's important from a policy point of view because it's easy for public, in public policy context to think um, that you know if we need to change the way we behave, that's going to be really really difficult, and everyone's going to hate it. Now sometimes you know, we can't change the way we behave, we behave limitlessly. There are some things we really, really won't like. Um, but actually, we are very flexible. And of course, we're seeing that now. I mean, we're talking now in the um, lockdown 
across the world for the for COVID-19 virus. And that is an extremely difficult period for, for a great many people. But I think it's what's remarkable is that people have managed to change their behavior so comprehensively, so quickly, um, and do things which uh, uh, many, many people would have intuited would be impossible. You, 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 there certainly were many, many people in the UK saying, well, there's no point having this severe lockdown. No one, people, people won't stand for it. Um, in fact, surprisingly, you know, people will stand for it and people actually can adapt their behavior remarkably well, though it's, it's difficult. So that takes me on to the final point, which is how we should see ourselves. And I think there's something, there's something potentially a bit alarming about the mind is flat perspective. And I think some people do feel disturbed by that um, because they think, gosh, I thought I, I thought of myself as having a deep set of commitments and beliefs and, and preferences and being, a, being determined by those, and that was me. And you're telling me that I'm making most of that stuff up. But I want to view it a bit differently. I want to say, no, you're really a history. The thing that makes you you is not a list of things you believe. It's the history of things you've thought and done. And when you do new things, you're referring back to those things you've thought and done before. Um, in the same way that if you're a musician, you're a, a jazz saxophonist um the way you play is determined by all the things you played before you're continually referring back to all the things you played and also the things you've heard um, and that's determining how you how you play now that's improvisation for you right you're, you're basing your improvisation at any given moment all those snippets of improvisation you've done in the past and that is both heartening in what's heartening is for two reasons one reason it's heartening is it makes it obvious that we're all special and different because we all have different histories and different lives. It's not that um, with the right psychometric test, I can say, oh, yeah, no, you two people are pretty much identical because you, you're exactly the same on extroversion and neuroticism and you know, whatever. It, it, therefore, you're the same. It's sort of obviously false. Um, it's obviously the case that people are hugely, hugely different and varied. And the reason they're hugely different and varied and enormously rich is that li- the lives they've led are just enormously rich, just like uh, the, the bank of memories of... Um, uh, of music from a, from a saxophonist, just incredibly rich. But the other thing is that it also gives you a sense that you can change yourself, but not that quickly or that you know, that dramatically. So if you want to learn to be a better saxophonist, or in fact, to learn to play the saxophone from scratch, you can't just think your way to do it. You've just got to practice and just keep keep at it, and just copy people who do things well, who do things that you want to do and and replay the things you think that you did which worked well and stop playing the things which which were terrible errors and that process of incremental change is obviously what's going on when you're learning a musical instrument it's a long slow process but you do get better at it and you can do things you never thought you could do and it's just like that with with thinking social interaction anything else i think we as uh, are improvising creatures but we can get better at improvising and we can improvise in different ways if we don't like the way things are working out now slow methodical change can can change us but not by magic and we can't magically think i want to be the you know i want to be charlie parker or some phenomenal saxophonist genius uh, i can't do that and i certainly can't do it overnight probably can't do it at all but i can um change my behavior i can change my thoughts sort of one uh, one step at a time so so the human mind is a jazz saxophonist is this maybe the title of of your next maybe, book. maybe it should be. <laughs> I think there's actually, I'm, I'm very influenced by music. I spent a lot of time as a child um, playing jazz guitar. And I think a lot of the things I think about actually, more than I realize, are actually influenced by the struggle to uh, to learn to play a musical instrument. Um, never particularly well, to be honest. Um, 
it's actually I think it is it's a, it's a metaphor that conditions my thinking about learning all kinds of things in probably ways I'm not fully aware of I like the metaphor I, I also I'm a, I'm a jazz musician and 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 I, I, I have to say though I have taken my my wife to see Branford Mass Alice concert before and she was not super um yeah, enthused by uh, avant-garde bebop jazz sax <laughs> playing but nevertheless I love the I love the phrase I love the metaphor the uh the mind is a is a is a jazz saxophonist. I think that's an excellent point to um, to tie up the conversation. So I've been talking with Nick Jater on his book, "The Mind Is Flat: The Remarkable Shallowness of the Improvising Brain." Nick, thanks very much. Well, thank you very much, John. It's been a fascinating uh, opportunity to, to chat and great set of questions and lots for me to think about. So thank you.